Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a great episode with my friend, Dr. Rob. We're going to be talking about some amazing things, recovery, addiction. We're going to be talking about how to live your life the best way possible today. And if you listen till the end, I'm going to give you a tip that will you will never have to worry about getting drunk or getting dope sick ever again by just using this one hack. So just stay till the end. You'll find out what that is. Dr. Rob, my brother, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great, Richard. Thanks. It's a long time coming, this show. But, you know, sit down, guys, and enjoy. I know we're live. So uh, what is said is what is said. But doing good, Rich. Let's do it. I love it. So, so Doc, Dr. Rob, um and I want to hit on so, so many things. I want to hit on some NLP later. I want to hit on addiction and recovery. But first question is, what is your definition of resiliency? Resilience for me is, is, is just keep going. You know, it's, uh, you know, through the storms, through the sunny side, through the good times, through the bad times. You know, I found out through life it's not about me. It's about other people. So being resilient day in, day out is the key for me. You know, showing up every single day. I love it. So give us a little bit of background. You know, where'd you come from? Obviously, you're not from New Jersey. So tell us a little bit about where you come from, where did you grow up, and how did you get into this crazy world of recovery and addiction recovery? So uh, Dr. O'Kelly, addiction doctor. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Manchester, the United Kingdom. There's two famous football teams over there. Uh, so, yeah, I... Uh, I, I, we grew up on the, on the council estates over there, which is basically the project over here. We come from a very loving family, although there wasn't a lot of money around. Um, so, yeah, I went to normal school, started playing the guitar at the age of four or five. I can't remember. On stage, getting paid with my auntie and uncle at nine or ten. Um, and just, you know, I was born an alcoholic, so... We'll get into this later, and, and don't freak out with this, with this guys. But you've got to remember, I've been studying neuroplasticity and neuroscience for a long time. I've been in the industry for 30 years, over 8,000 patients. Alcoholics are born, drug addicts are made. So there is a slight difference, though we both show up the same, obviously. So, yeah, I went through the normal trials and tribulations as I grew up and uh, went to college by freak accident. It was nothing that I did. And uh, the disease got worse and worse and worse until um, I broke. I, I became, I lost my wife, my children, my houses, cars, everything, and I become homeless. Uh, and that, that's where he took me, you know. So in a nutshell, I know we'll get into each part of that story, but that's about it, man. Come over here 18 years ago to Texas for two weeks only and never went back. So this is my home. San Antonio is where I live now. Uh, we have five offices around the world. We're very successful. What we do, we have a 97% success rate, uh, unheard of, and a money-back guarantee, unheard of in the industry. But we know our shit, you know, we know our stuff. Every single one of my guys are recovered alcoholics and addicts. And we just love what we do because we do what we love. All right, so let's hop back in the Wayback Machine because I am the worst, world's worst guitar player, and I'll freely admit it. But I didn't pick it up until I was... 50. So you picked up the guitar at five. Who were some of your influences and who did you like to listen to as you were growing up? 
Well, it's weird because I don't remember until it was later on, but I remember practicing every, every during the week because I went out with my uncle and auntie uh, and I just in the background playing bass as much as I could. But uh, influences, whatever we had to rehearse for the week before, so they always stuck a couple of songs in, new songs, mainly country songs, the old country style, a little bit of pop. But as I grew up uh, into my teens, um, there are a few there are a few groups that stick out that are very very good that people don't think they're very very good, like ABBA. The musical arrangements on the music is mind blowing on ABBA. Yeah. They're very very good. I grew up with Thin Lizzy, Status Quo. Uh, never never got into the rock side of it. I, I've never really heard Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and all that. I wasn't into that stuff. And then of course uh, when i started really playing bass uh bass uh, guitarist from level 42 boots and collins all them great bass players and uh, i love any kind of music if, if you came into my house tonight you will hear rap you will hear a little bit of rock pop country i mean i don't have a specific genre that i listen to uh because i'm a musician i listen to lots and lots of of different styles and variations and you know, and I'm I'm a big fan of Thin Lizzy. I was a big fan of Phil Linnett. I just thought he was an amazing bass player. But also, the guitars were out of this world. They they played the most synchronized guitars I've ever heard. So, guys, if you don't know Thin Lizzy, definitely check out some early, especially early Thin Lizzy. Just check him out. You'll definitely be happy. So now, when you were gigging around, obviously you've seen the seedier side of life especially you know behind the scenes of musicians they're known for that so you must have seen a lot of that yeah i mean uh, you know i i always wanted to be a professional musician so in my teens uh you know typical musician is semi-professional you'd load two thousand dollars worth of gear into a van that cost two hundred dollars to get paid twenty dollars you know that's what we were doing but you know one day uh somebody called me there was a studio just outside manchester in stockport it was owned by 10cc and uh, they said do you want to do some session work and i'm like what is session work we said well, you go in you read music they give it to you you can't rehearse it you play you're out the studio and i said yeah i can do that so you know you gotta remember back in the day probably five pound per gig maybe i don't know it's too long ago uh, I went in the studio and I did four tracks and they gave me 50 pounds. And I was like a millionaire. I was like, oh my God, this is what session playing is. So, you know, I, I eventually started playing through just complete practice and being the best around because I'm a, I'm, I have the addiction of personality. I'm either the best or don't do it. Played at Abbey Road. So I, I sessioned with uh, Elton John, David Bowie, Queen, all them guys the early hours of the morning which is brilliant because it put me through college so yeah music has always been in my blood because it's in the family um so yeah i mean even today i have a music room in, in my house and i'll pop in there now and again and you know i have like seven guitars three bass full set of drums mics pas violins everything i can play any instrument in the world uh, obviously if it's new to me You've got to give me 10, 15 minutes, you know, to find out where stuff is. But I'm just natural like that. My brother isn't, but he can build a house. I have no idea how to build a house. He can paint walls. I have no idea how to paint walls, as stupid it may seem. And don't even get into car mechanics. I have no idea. But music and getting people well, that's my forte, man. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that Elton John's been clean a long time now. 
And he actually helped the artist Eminem help him get clean and sober too. So, and I think that's a great testament that Mr. Elton John, that he can be, you've been, so I think he's over, over 20 years, I think of sobriety now. So, yes. you know, and he partied, or he was a hardy partier at one point in his life, but he, he decided, you know, to get clean and he actually tried to help George Michael get sober. And that's when they had the big falling out. You know, so I want to give a big shout out to Elton. I, you're probably not listening to this, but Elton, I respect you with everything you're doing. So, so guys, let me tell you a little story about Elton John. We're in a studio one night, just like two o'clock in the morning. It's raining and pouring and winding and lightning outside and thunder. And every now and again, the electricity would run out because of the strike, but the, the generator would kick in. Well, it's like a fraction of a second, but it did, in, it, you know, interrupt the recording. So after about six or seven times, Elton says, come on, I've had enough of this, cursing and everything. And we went back to his penthouse suite at the Savoy Hotel. But back in the day, the Savoy Hotel, guys, was one of the best, if not the best, hotel in the world. It was so prestigious. But we were upstairs in, in his penthouse, and there's there's a there's 20 of us there. You know, there's that, and I, I hear Elton screaming from the bedroom. You've got to Google this, guys. Screaming from the bedroom. And I think, who's he talking to? He's like really cursing. And I went in, and he, this is how crazy days and crazy he was when he was using and drinking. He was on the phone to the manager of the hotel, telling the manager that if he didn't stop the rain and the wind immediately, he would never book into his hotel ever again. That's where the crazy days. That's when I knew I was in the mix of not going to get out of this alive. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I quote all the time. The great poet laureate Jim Morrison says, you know, nobody gets out of here alive. So, <clears throat> you know, we might as well enjoy life while we have it here. Exactly. Exactly. So, so talk to us, you know, how did you when did it start getting to re getting really deep and dark for you in, in your addiction? It wasn't till um, maybe in my, I mean, I was drinking heavily, don't get me wrong, and still functioning. But when it really started to turn, I got married and, you know, uh, decided to have the first child. And I thought that would clean and sober me up, but it didn't. Then my second child. So during that time, uh, there was a lot of stuff happening in the house and work that uh that wasn't good. I stabbed my wife three times one night, Richard, because she won't let me finish my bottle of vodka. And that's the nice side that happened in that house. That's one thing I can share on air. Even though it's shocking, I did much worse than that. So it's around that time. But the craziest thing was, I didn't think I had a drink problem. Everybody was telling me. And I'm walking around the backyard uh, at 5.30 in the morning drinking half a bottle of vodka, but didn't think I had a problem. You know, that, that that's how crazy it got. And after I lost everything, I'm on the streets for 14 months. Only then, one morning when I broke down, I realized that I couldn't stop drinking. So, you know, it, it's a crazy disease. And, and uh, that, that's where it got really dark for me. You know, I, I, I attempted suicide seven times. And on two occasions, it worked. You know, I was dead on the side of a smelly, old, wet Manchester road in deep hours in the morning. And, and they call the, the ambulance and they come around and, you know, they saved my life on two occasions. And I've got to tell you, I hated them then for that. I hated them then for because I didn't want to live. I tried jumping off buildings. I tried tying myself to railway tracks. I tried overdose. I tried slitting my wrist. It was just crazy. Somebody always found me. 
you know but now i know why but back in the day obviously i didn't so yeah it became horrible but now there's a difference between being homeless in los angeles california than to being homeless <coughs> in the uk where it rains almost every day yeah. and it's oh. cold rain it's not warm rain so there's a whole different it's a whole different connotation of being homeless when you're wet and cold and you're hungover or you're dope sick it is you know i remember one guy found him he was snowing and he and there was against his fence where the con uh, construction guys were working it was up. It was opposite uh, St Mary's Hospital in Manchester, and I, I passed out. I would, I would drop myself, passed out. And when he found me, I was close to death. I was all my face and everything was covered in snow. And it's just because I moved a little bit. He thought it was an animal, and he came over and he found me, and they rushed me to hospital. But yeah, you know, it's it's cold over there, man. I remember the first night that I, my dad threw me out. Uh, and he gave me he gave me like five pound, just a lot of money, and close the door on me at midnight because I'd been drinking in the house and I said the promise was I would never do that and a friend of his was my sponsor at the time told him to throw me out because it would save my life and you know he did uh, and it was not so many years later when I'd got sober and I was back in the house with my mom one day and we were drinking tea dad was out at the bar with his friends and I, and she said you remember that dad time dad threw you out and I said you know what mom I've I hate that man for doing that, and I still hate him today. This is how much freaking damage we do to people, and we don't even know it. And she said, can I tell you something, son? In 50-odd years of being married to your father, that's the only and first time I've seen him cry. And it devastated me. How much shit do we do? How much damage do we cause? And we're oblivious to it, you know? And, and that's one of my big things today is, you know, Alcohol has 1% to do with alcoholism, the same with drug addiction. It's not the problem, it's a symptom. The problem, I never had a drinking problem, Richard. I had a thinking problem. I damaged people. People lied for me. I pulled everyone in. I was like a contagious illness. Everybody I came near to, I infected with my disease. You know, the lying, the cheating, the, you know, it's a horrible disease and it's not about the alcohol. People think it is. If you can just stop drinking, the only problem is when I stopped drinking, I was still left with my warped mind there are three parts of the brain that differ with alcoholics to any other addict or illness in the world uh, that normal people don't know about. So it's not a choice, but we have to start being responsible once we get sober. So when I stopped drinking in, you know, for two, three, four months, I think I had nine months at one time, there was no alcohol in my body, but the behavior and circuitry of my brain hadn't changed. So sooner or later, I was destined to relapse. And so I did every single time. And as I'm, I'm scribbling shit here because I want to talk about it. Uh, somebody once, I put out a post a couple of weeks ago because I just celebrated 35 years <coughs> of continu continuous sobriety and clean, being clean. And I, I put out a post and I caught a lot of shit for it, but I wrote that relapse does not have to be a part of your recovery. You don't have to relapse. Because yeah. no. I know a lot of people that they were like, you know what? I'm going to go out for one more good time. They don't come back. And now that now when I go back to that meeting, there's a chair empty because they thought they had one more run in them. Yeah. So talk about, you know, relapse 
does not have to be a part of your recovery. Relapse is not part of the solution. Relapse is part of the disease. Step out of the disease and get into the solution. End of story. Yeah, but, but shut up. End of story. I was sick to death of watching people die inside and outside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and CA and NA. Lack of knowledge. You know, if you, you've the book said, I love that book. It's the best book in the world pertaining to recovery of an alcoholic. The rooms, no, not anymore. We're down to 3%. But let me get into that. Yeah, relapse, you don't have to relapse. You know, that's why I'm still doing what I did today. People say, you know, when I first started getting sober, oh, you're on a pink cloud. I've been on a pink cloud for 32 years. I ain't coming down for nobody. You know, life is for living. If you want to go out and try it one more time, God bless you. But listen, let me tell you about the research we've done with people that almost died of alcoholic poisoning, heart attacks, uh, liver failure, and, and they brought them back. And uh, this is one thing they said to me, Richard, which was all in common is, I didn't drink that much that night. That's the disease. It's not the quantities we take. It's not what times we do it. It's when alcohol or drugs get into my body, I react different to the normal person. You see, I have the obsessive mind. It's called the basal ganglia in the brain. And I will repeat behavior if nothing's changed. And I will repeat behavior. So when when we do relapse because most treatment centers talk about relapse prevention which is a bunch of shit you know the stuff i've heard in, and there's some great ones guys thank you for doing a great job but there are some ones that are just teaching this shit you know saying things like you know there's 20 of us there this time next month five of us would have gone or died or relapse it's like shut up you know let's get to the crux of the matter and it's not about the alcohol or drugs man it's about my childhood trauma. It's about the way I think, the progressive illness, about the basal ganglia, the hypothalamus, how it turns around and tells me at one time not to drink uh, drink water and eat food to survive, but to drink alcohol. That's why we can go days or weeks without food or water. You see, I didn't know that. So I hung around the guys in, in these 12-step meetings that weren't really alcoholics. And because they could just stop because they wanted to, they expected me to, but I can't do that because I'm the real alcoholic, which means I'm allergic to the ethanol in alcohol and I have an obsessive mind. I, my mind wants to kill me and make it look like an accident. And let me tell you, the mind is different than the brain. Ever heard guys, the, the same mind over matter, the mind, our uh, energy, power, you know, you can't feel it, touch it, hear it. The mind is matter, the brain is matter. So mind over matter, when you get up every morning, you can train your brain to have an amazing, fantastic day. But if you don't clear the past up, if you don't clear that childhood trauma, and everybody has childhood trauma, you can tell by the way they behave today, you've got to go past and clear that up. And then you step into the solution. There's no relapse. Will I be sober in 100 years' time? Yes, if I continue to do Today, my morning work, my afternoon work, my nighttime, I'd be kind to people, I compliment three people, all the stuff that I do today. But if I stop doing that, and I've proven this in the past, I will relapse. You know, there's no cure for alcoholism, guys, but you know something? There's no cure for the common cold or food poisoning. But there are simple steps and rules you can take to make sure you never get that, you know? Simple as that. So, you know, relapse is not part of the solution, it's part of the disease. You know, and like you, you know, I'm, I once I started playing guitar, I I started listening to all, a, a lot of different musical influences, and I just wrote, you know, there was Jimmy, there was Janice, Bob, John Bonham, 
lead singer for ACDC. I'm sure that they had plans for the next day. They thought they were just going to go out one more time, have one more party, and they never came back. So, guys, if you, if you like, like Dr. Rob says, you know, relapse doesn't have to be a part of your recovery. But now also somebody asked me because I'm on a lot of podcasts. I, I think I have 300 lined up this year myself. And a lot of people ask me, well, are you sober or are you dry? And I'm, what's the difference? In my opinion, I'm not a doctor. I'm only in ninth grade dropout. But my opinion is being dry means I don't drink, but I'm still an asshole. Sober means I don't drink and I'm trying not to be an asshole. So talk to us about the difference between being dry and being sober. Because there's a big difference. There, there is, and there's a big difference between uh, people who abuse alcohol, heavy drinkers, and the real alcoholic. So, you know, it's not about the alcohol. That's one thing we have to realize. We have an allergy to it, uh, to the ethanol in there. So if you're dry, so I, I mean, it's crazy. I was dry for, you know, like I said, nine months at one time. Uh, no behavior change, no psychic change, which means a change in neural pathways, which today they call neuroplasticity. There's no change, so therefore I will relapse no matter how hard, if I'm the real deal. Now, there are people that can just stop completely. You're not an alcoholic, guys. I hate to tell you that because I know you go to all the meetings and it's great. Go, go, go. I love it. Go as many meetings as you can. But if you're not the real alcoholic, shut up when somebody's dying at the back of the room who, who really needs help. The book says it all, you know. So recovered, the book mentions 17 times. What does recovered mean? Does it mean I'm cured? No. Two different, entirely different words by a dictionary. Let's look at, so that 12-step group started, uh, the Oxford group, but that most of the people went to Oxford University like me. So if you look in the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary for recovered, it says to gain one's health and state of mind. That's all it says. Well, I'm not sick anymore because I'm not, I'm not feeding the allergies, so I'm not sick. And I've been restored to sanity. So to gain one's health and state of mind, that's what recovered means. doesn't mean we're cured, but you can step out of that continual relapse. And the people, you've got to watch who the people hang around with. You hang around nine depressed people, you will become the tenth. If you hang around nine successful people, you will become the tenth. It's the memory part of the brain the brain and uh, behavioral. We're behavioral people, we we learn off one another. So monkey see, monkey do kind of thing. If I hang around a friend of mine as a stupid saying, in a couple of weeks, I'll be saying that stupid saying that I hated when, when she said it. It's just part of it. So you gotta be careful who you hang around with, that's for sure. But, you know, there's a there's millions of us out there that, that's got to a place where they're successful, whatever that looks like for you. I can tell you for, Four years ago, my daughter got in touch with me. I flew over there and she handed me my three-month-old granddaughter. That's called success. Forget the money. I've been rich and I've been poor. Don't get me wrong. I, I choose rich every time, but it didn't buy me happiness. So what does successful look like for you? I want to hang around them sober, successful guys that, you know, conversations don't revolve around alcohol every time we meet. You know, what? If people outside the industry, I don't introduce me as an alcoholic. I mean, I just don't drink. Why do people make such a big deal of it? Oh, you don't drink. Why? Can you imagine if it, if it and that's the only, by the way, it's the only thing that, that people question is alcohol. You don't go to a barbecue and say, I don't like cheese. And they go, you don't like cheese. Why? We don't do that as a society. So, you know, we've got to get used to that. And we've got to push this message forward that, 
stop thinking, you know, that you're going to relapse. Otherwise, you're going to relapse. You know, start expanding the mind and what is possible. Use quantum physics. Read up on quantum physics and neuroscience, which we specialize in the neuroscience side, and you'll find out that you really can do anything you put your mind to. And, you know, but for me, like, we're, I can actually go look at my refrigerator here, and there's beer, there's wine, because I don't drink it. Um, I, I identify as a non-drinker. So for me, it's it's not even, it's you know, somebody says, you know, I tell everybody, I drink, I die next there's there's you know there's but i also make sure that when i go out to eat with my bride and my family that even if i order a diet coke and it's not in a can my wife will taste it before i drink it <clears throat> uh, he won't even cook with to make uh vanilla cookies with the vanilla extract with with the, the regular vanilla extract i won't use certain scopes or mouthwash because <clears throat> it has the alcohol with them I'm just trying to protect myself at yeah. every single measure. So talk about that is not putting yourself in a position to fail. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, in the early days, you've got to watch what you do. You know, you've got to watch where you go. I mean, for many years, I, I, I would buy orange juice, and in England, they'd serve it in a bottle. I would put my thumb over that bottle for the all night until I finished that drink, and again with the second one because I was protecting myself. Loads of people, I've had vodka poured in my drinks before, as, you know, Rob's miserable, let's get him in the mood, and, you know, I'm struggling with alcoholism, I'm treated, so I'm going to freaking die if I don't sort it out. They don't know. They don't know that. But, I mean, common sense, if, if you know, if you feel you're going to an event and you, and, you, and you stood with your God, spirit of the universe or energy or whatever, Uncle Jimmy, whatever it is, then go, you know? I mean, I have, I have, I have vodka, rum, wine in my house that my sister and brother-in-law drinks every single night. I will pour it for them. You know, when they come home from work, I have everything ready for them. But I know deep inside that if I drink that, all bets are off. I think Robbie Downey Jr. said it best. He said, if I have a, if you have a drink on the, I can't have a drink on the 6th, 7th, 8th of January because I have plans for Christmas. And that's about right. If I drink now, we don't know where it's going to end. You know, we just don't know because the choice has been taken away from me again. And let me talk about why that choice is, is the hypothalamus that tells us from birth, it's a survival part of our brain. It tells us we have to drink water and eat food to survive. You often see babies put their hand down their mouth or cry because their tummy hurts. It's a natural response from the brain that that's our survival. It's what we need to do. At a certain point of drinking Korea, which mine was in the 20s, my hypothalamus changes, and this is where we differ uh, from other uh, addictions, and he turns around and tells me to drink alcohol. When your brain tells you to do something, you don't have a choice. You do it. You know, it becomes a working part of the brain. The neural pathways to self-sabotage, because that's the real problem, uh, ingrained from birth. You had childhood trauma to that, abandonment, you know, never been validated or approved from parents or caregivers. I grow up always thinking I was less, less than, I wasn't worthy. You know, the imposter syndrome, all that stuff you grow up with. And, and people don't believe that, you know, learned behavior and measurement from parents can have an effect on a child. But let me tell you this. If you, we've, done, we've done absolutely everything to trace and track this and research everything we talk about. If a young girl, 9, 10, 11, is in the house and on a regular basis she sees dad come home, he, he's drunk and he, he ends up in a fist fight with mom, she learns a few things really quickly. 
She learns to listen for the key in the door. If the key goes straight into the lock and opens, it's going to be a great night. If it jingles around trying to get it in, she has to run and hide because it's going to be violence. So what effect does that have when they grow up? Well, that teenager goes into late teenage and goes to college and he meets a guy, but you know who she'll attract? The same guy that ends up beating her and ends up having an alcohol or drug problem. It's just the way it is with our mind and our energy, who we attract to the point that if she did meet somebody who really treated her really well, she would self-sabotage that relationship because it doesn't feel natural. So unless you go back and you do your work, you're not gonna make it, guys. Okay, so now, like I said, I'm not any professional whatsoever. Um, but I've been, like I said, I've been clean a while. You're like my 1200th interview. And I've realized a couple of things that when an adult acts out, it's usually because of trauma from the ages of three to 13. <clears throat> and then by military and first responders, then you add war to the mix. You add drugs to the mix, alcohol to the mix. Not all the time, but most of the time. And then you have the storm and nobody tells you how to get out of the perfect storm no unless they've been there you can add iphones to that and games to that you know you show you show me a you show me a kid that's playing games for 10 hours a day i'll show you a future addict why what why what what's the correlation the addictive personality the isolation they're doing the same thing over and over again for hours and hours and hours and hours it's the same drug addicts are not born. They have the addictive personality. Most drug addicts that we see, 95%, especially women who have a serious heroin problem, started in the doctor's office. So it's that repetitive things of concentrating on lack of communication, no validation, all that stuff that enhanced and both show the same alcoholism and drug addiction. Like I say, but in the brain, they're different. But yeah, you get into that self-sabotaging pattern of doing something that's not good for you. You're never going outside. You're never getting the pure oxygen that you need. The dopamine, oxytocin, the serotonin, all that stuff is not being produced in the brain. And if it's not produced in the brain, then we take the nearest thing that makes us feel good. So all that kid needs to do in school or college, so when he's taste a drug and they're off to the races, you know, because everything is focused on, on gaming when they grow up. So it's one that makes them feel good. They get they get addicted to, to games. If you take a, a you know a, the computer off, a, I don't know, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kid, he'll have nothing. He'll have nothing. He won't be able to function, you know. And that's how bad it is. iPhones are the same. Uh, you see people all the time. How many friends you got? Oh, I got five thousand friends on Facebook. Ah, oh, buddy, you just plugged into the wall. You know, you 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 don't have any. And we see that today with children are coming up. We have no communication skills. You know, when they pile into the real world, something really bad happens where they feel as if they've been left behind. They feel abandoned and then they isolate. I hate to say it, but most people that end up in school, shooting the school up, is the guy at the back of the class that nobody speaks to, you know? And, and he gets deeper and deeper into his uh, depression. And then the gaming, gaming, gaming comes up and, and he's more likely to do that. I'm not saying everybody, but... You know, if, if we just open communications, if we if we just limited gaming or iPhones or iPads or whatever to several hours a day, then we see a different child. We see a different teenager growing up where he's, he's actually conversing in a world around him and different feelings and get outside and, you know, all the stuff that we need. We're not meant to be inside. We're, human beings are not meant to be inside. 
And, and as Gary Brecker says, the Sony people have sat down for way too long. We're not meant to sit down either. We're meant to stop telling granny to, to you know, don't go outside, it's too cold. What? You know, we, we've got a different angle. And it's the same with addiction. There's people think because they've been brought up that way to say, this is what it is, the drugs, that it. it's not. Everything you know about addiction and alcoholism, you know, I had to question. I had to question a lot. And what I found out was mind blowing. It really was. So, yeah, you, we see the generation coming up now, you know, don't don't limit to one, you know, one thing that eliminates you know everything else apart from the excitement in the brain, the dopamine and everything uh, when you're playing games, because you'd be looking for that dopamine outside and dopamine is not in other human beings. It's things that make you feel better about yourself and change the way you feel. And that's where we're going, unfortunately. And, you know, I'm interviewing the drummer for Def Leppard, uh, Rick Allen. In, in, in a little while. And I'm going to talk to him about what you're talking about because, you know, Steve Clark, the guitarist that died at a young age, all he would do is sit and play guitar. And then eventually when he got on stage, he had to drink in order just to play in front of people. Yeah. So I think it, it can go back to being, you know, even, even with music, if you just sit in your room and grow up, just, all you're doing is playing guitar. You really don't know how to talk to other people. You don't know how to converse or have a conversation, correct? Is it so? It's pretty much along the same lines, right? Yeah. Anything that we 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 absolutely get addicted to, and, and that can be cake, porn, food, guitar, iPads. Very different with the with the iPads and the iPhones. It's a stimulation for the mind. That's the only thing that's different. But yeah, you isolate and do one thing. Then when you come out into the world, you can only do that thing. I've worked with the the biggest movie stars, rock stars, TV people. I'm working with three massive guys right now in the industry. In the music industry and uh, they all tell me the same that unless i have a guitar around my neck i can't function you know yeah i mean even with nikki six you know nikki was struggling with heroin and you know and a lot of those guys struggle with it <clears throat> but we just lost um i wish i could remember the the, the kid's name he's not a kid to me he's a kid but the guy from friends you know Matthew. who knew that he was struggling you know yeah. everybody thought he was clean you know, off of everything. And then, you know, the autopsy report comes out. So even if we think somebody's clean, some of the times they're not clean anymore. They're just hiding it really well. Yeah. I mean, God bless Matthew Perry. And uh, I actually met him in Dallas uh, many years ago. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to get into and diss his name or anything like that. But he was struggling until the day he died. You know, a few of us knew about that. Um, yeah. else, when, when somebody goes on TV said I'm clean and sober, people believe them and and rightly so you know but when you're in the industry as long as i am you say things different and you know there's, there's a million you know matthew perry's every month every six months that he whatever it is that do exactly the same thing he's just obviously he was highlighted because he was famous but yeah i mean it's uh it's an isolation disease and it's the only no, disease. But, you know because I'm, I'm thinking of people that i admire um like chester bennington you know, Robin Williams, um, some of these, they look, they're so happy. They look like they're happy on the outside, but they're really struggling on the inside. And then when Robin Williams, they find him hanging in his closet, people were like, oh, I never even saw it. Well, you weren't really paying attention because a lot of times the people that are struggling, they're going to tell you what they're struggling, but you're not really listening. There's always signs, Richard. There's always signs. You know, and the reason why we studied suicide is my 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 wife 
uh, now uh, had a brother and they were all at, you know a party barbecue at at dad's house and he had children and, and wife and everything and he said to my wife janet said i was going to nip home for 20 minutes he was struggling with alcoholism and addiction but he was clean and sober at the time and he went back home opened the garage walked in took a gun and blew his head off and there was no didn't seem any reason but if you'd have put me in that situation around him i could have told you that something bad was going to happen but we don't see it i mean mostly because we don't want to see it but family and friends you know there are signs we can look out for they're very very small but unfortunately entertainers most comedians come off and go home to isolation or crying or you know drugs or alcohol because you're you're on every time i you know i remember working with this guy in the uk he was a huge comedian and you know he said the only problem with my job is everybody expects you to tell a joke when you meet them and that's not normal life, you know? So we put on most, a lot of people do that. They put on a new mask when they walk out the door every morning, you know, hiding behind that mask and, and 95, 96% of people do that. Uh, and it's just, you don't really know the person until you really know the person. And you know, let's, cause I, I'm a big, I, I'm a big comedy guy. I love comedians, but a lot of them <clears throat> struggle with addiction and depression and anxiety. So for 20 minutes, if they're on stage, they're okay. Yeah. It's the other 1,420 minutes. That's the problem, right? The interesting part as well is if you go back in their childhood, usually the bullied. And the way to get out being bullied is to be funny and, and tell jokes. So it all starts from there. So the childhood trauma is rife by the time they grow into an adult. And then they can be quite famous. They can be very famous, but it's always still there waiting, you know? And, and that's what happens. It gets overwhelming. No, nobody in their right mind would kill children, would massacre a school, would commit suicide. Nobody in their right mind. There's something gone wrong somewhere. Babies are not born to kill other people. They're really not. So you've got to look at the, you know, the, the parenting, the, very loosely parenting, caregivers is, is better. Sorry, guys, caregivers, people around them and stuff like that. But there's always signs, you know, there really is. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at like some of my favorite comedians, Chris Chris Farley, Richard Pryor, John Belushi, you know, they they were these talented people while they're on stage or while, well, they're tormented when they're not when they're not in front of a crowd when they're by themselves, they're tormented all the time. Richard Farley, famous word, he said, he said to his his friend, kind of what it is, he said, I'm sick of being the fact the funny fat guy. You know, and he was sick to death of that, but obviously he was very famous, but just couldn't, you know, something in his brain said, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. And plus you see these guys going downhill really heavily drinking and using and the body can't stand that. It's like when people go, the, the Rolling Stones are still, oh my God, they take all them drugs and they still perform. You cannot take drugs and drink alcohol in excess if you're running around the stage in your 70s. You have to be a peak performance. And I can tell you that they are. So don't get fooled by drugs and alcohol. No, it used to be like that with many people. Not now. If you see guys now who are very successful and been around since the freaking 70s, 80s or whatever, they're in their peak fitness. They just keep that myth, rock and roll, drinking drugs, but they ain't doing it anymore. A lot of people, the new, the new drunk is a new sober today. Yeah, and if you look at Mick Jagger, I mean, he's got an eight-pack and he's running around. He's having kids at 80. So yeah, he, he's doing something right. You think he's doing that with alcohol and drugs, rife in his, nah, you can't do it. It's a myth. It's a myth. And most people, especially people coming up now, they're going no to alcohol. 
and uh, choosing a better way of life. And that's what it's about. What, what, what quality of life? Because it's been proven over and over again that the mind can do anything that you want it to. And people used to say to me all the time, they go, well, I can't be president of the United States. <clears throat> Forget your political views for a second. We had a business room with no political training or education. We're in the country for a few years. So don't tell me that you can't do anything that you put your mind to because it's just not true. So if somebody's coming to you said, or if I came to you and I said, Doc, I'm sick and tired of sick and tired. I'm, <clears throat> I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, which I was in uh, January 1st, 1989. So what are the first things, first steps you have, have those people do when they come to you and say, I really need help and I'm willing to change? Well, first of all, you got to make sure they're right. Okay. So before you can get in front of me, you have an assessment. Now, I was the guy in Dallas, Texas, that uh, turned down Britney Spears in Campisi's restaurant because she wasn't ready. And her and dad, Jamie, offered me a million dollars. And I, I said no, because if I do it for money, then I might as well go drink myself and die. You know, so I won't do it. So we have to make sure they're right. And, and some, of the, some of the antics that we'll pull, especially in an office environment, is I will sit in front of the potential patient and I would say, you know, I, I know you used to take, you know, Adderall or X or whatever it is. And I'd say to them, like, I've got some Xanax in my drawer that I took off a patient. Here you go. Just have one more night and we start tomorrow. And if he takes that drug, all better off. We're, we're not working with him. And we stop him down in it, obviously, because that would be illegal. But we go out to the waiting room and we tell his parents he's not ready. You have to be fully committed to change the way you think, the way you walk, the way you act, the way you behave. You know, you've got to be willing to change everything about you and have fun as well. Because if you're not having fun, go drink. If you're struggling every single my sponsees, when I used to be in AA, used to call me, oh, Rob, I feel like drinking. Go drink. I'm not this powerful. I wish I was. God bless you. But there's something you missed out. You're something missed out and you'll go drink. Don't call me and tell me, go drink. There's nothing I can do. No human power can relieve my alcoholism. But God could and would if he was sought, the book says. And I love that. You know, when you connect with a higher power and you have the neural pathway change, which psychic change, psychic of the mind, psychology, when you have a psychic change and a spiritual awakening, your DNA changes. You cannot be the same person as you was before. Otherwise, you'll relapse. And, you know, like when I first got sober, my first 90 days, the, first, the thing that really got me through that first, that first period was I read the promises like five or six times a day because I believed that, hey, if, if I just don't drink today, the promises are going to come true. So I just got to make sure I can drink any day except today. And if I don't drink today, then the promises will come true. And th that's what kept me on the straight and narrow for the first couple months. But also, when I'm I'm an old, we're me and you, we're old school. Where I would go, when I, the first meeting I went to was January second, nineteen eighty nine, and I sat down with a bunch of old guys, and they're drinking nasty coffee, eating stale cookies, and they just said, "Sit down, shut up, open your ears. You don't know nothing, so just learn." Yeah, that guy. I think that was some of the greatest. Yeah things i've ever heard yeah was just sit down and shut up yeah <laughs> they're the old timers that the good old timers not the ones that have been sober 20 years and still miserable 
you know, they had a guy, same here, Richard, you know, my, my guys were, you know, my sponsor was a, was a, 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 a son of a, a mob in a, a very famous uh, gangster in London. And he would say the same, you know, shut up, sit down. You don't know shit. Don't say anything. You don't deserve to say anything. That's if you want to recover, listen. And that's what I did, you know, amongst a few other things. But yeah, you can people want to sugarcoat this stuff, you know, Meetings are never going to keep you sober, guys. You go to 100 meetings a day, you're never going to keep you sober. It's that constant contact with God. Read the book, you know, uh, change the way you think, get, get all your work done. Uh, we're the fellowship of the book. Alcoholics Anonymous is the book. We, we're the fellowship of, but you don't see that today. You know, you see all little clicks in meetings, but going back 20, 30 years is the guys when the success rate was huge, they were serious. You see, things are not going to be okay. If you keep drinking and use it, they're really not. And I tell parents this all the time is you can, you know, well, my son's upstairs and I don't want to annoy him. You're going to find him dead in his room. Who do we blame for that? Well, we blame you parents, first of all, and we blame the, obviously the son for not getting help, but you cannot sit back and say everything will be okay because it won't, you know, this is a, this will kill you. There's no, if there was an exception to the rule, believe me, as a fighting man and a bodybuilder when he was younger, I could fight everybody and I, I was a nasty piece of work, but I couldn't fight this disease. It put me on my ass every single time. So, you know, it's, it's, oh, it's okay. You relapse there, 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 Johnny. Hey, Rob, can you get him a cup of tea? Relapse. No, I can't get him a cup of tea. Johnny, why the fuck are you not on the same program that got me to a different place? Why do you keep coming in, getting the same chip and same chip every single time? You don't have to do that. You really don't. So then we've got to look at who's he talking to. And, and you go to his sponsor, and the sponsor, oh, well, he wasn't ready. No, no. When you're, when you're taking people under your care, you need to come straight from that book, and you need to come straight from reality. Is don't mess around. You know, most of my guys today will go, hey, you think I'm a, a biscuit factory? You, know, you think I sugarcoat everything? You're wrong. You're really wrong. Now, for, for heavy drinkers and, you know, abuse drinkers and people that just want to stop drinking, that's great. Go and find them them guys. But from the real alcoholic, you can't mess around with these, you know, whimsy bimsy sponsors that because he stays so for two years, thinks you can as well. It's not gonna work. Yep. And by the way, uh, one of my greatest friends, and he's an English bloke, uh, former Mr. Olivia, Mr. Dorian Yates. Oh, I know him well. I love Dorian. Another yeah. dude, another amazing dude that he, he tells you the, tells you the way it is. Whether you like it or not, it is what it is. So talk to us for the last couple of minutes. You know, like I used to get when I when I would go to go to meetings, um, and I would say, because now I had you know, I had 20, 25 years, and I would ask whenever I go speak, how many of you have actually done the fourth and the sixth step? No <laughs> hands go up. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, but that's that's where that's where the rubber meets the road when you can tell somebody else a, a stranger all the shit you've done and that's when you can start making amends and start you know and I tell everybody not taking the steps got me thrown out of my house but taking the steps got me into my brand new house so talk about you know take, actually doing the steps of the 12 step program it's very, I mean, 12-step program is brilliant. There's no doubt about that. Do the work, go through them. Most times, if, if you're that guy, you'll recover. But you have, to, you have to look at what the steps are because a lot of people 
unfortunately, through the last 20, 30 years, they misquote book. They misquote book with the steps all the time. I mean, yep. you know, step one, what all powder over alcohol? It doesn't say that. We admitted we were. It's a past tense word. We were. I'm not powerless over alcohol. I passed five liquor stores on the way to my office today. How can I be powerless? So when you start the steps and you've got a full knowledge of your condition, which is reading the book, then we were powerless. Well, I'm not powerless. Neither can you be if you're taking the steps. So it's really important we see stuff like that. You know, uh, one of the mis biggest misquotes in 12-step rooms is I can choose a God of my own understanding. It never says that in the book. Never. It says you can choose a God as you understand him with a capital H. It has to be something. Uh, it's a, a God. There's, I don't know, 3,000 gods in the, the universe. Just can pick one. You know, it's kind of that. But people like, oh, yeah, your sponsor can be the group. No, you can't. The book says that no human being, you know, you can't help me, guys. Now, a good sponsor can guide me, and the meetings are amazing, and you can get coffee and, and, and shoot the crap with people. It's amazing. But you're going to relapse if you don't do the work. You can't just hang around people that sober, thinking that they're the real deal, because you'll know if they are, they'll get you straight in the book and straight into, you know, 100 meetings a week will not keep you sober, guys. It really won't. And again, I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I got sober. That's what I still do today. I don't go to the meetings, but the book I teach because it's amazing. But yeah, guys, I mean, you know, it's, it, I always say to people, you know, it's about time you got real about this shit. Stop following the herd into relapse. Just stop doing it. I mean, if you've had enough, you've had enough. It hasn't been working for the past. It's like when, when people take, you know, and then again, you know, depressive pills, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I always ask them, you know, how long have you been taking the depression meds? You go out for 10 years. And my answer is, when did you think it was going to kick in? Because it hasn't yet. But we do that as a society, you know. In, in today's world, everything is instant gratification. It's like, slow down, do the freaking work, and your life will become amazing. And I'm going to give you three things, guys, at home right now. To, we want to change neuropathways, okay? We want to change behavior, and we want to get as much oxygen as we can. Do these three things, guys. Your life will change from tomorrow. Believe me if you do them right. So one of the reasons why nobody ever has woke up laughing is because of lack of oxygen. So on a normal circadian rhythm sleep pattern, between 2 and 5 o'clock in the morning is when the body is at its lowest repair. On a normal circadian rhythm. Okay, so it's also when most people die of natural causes. So human beings only breathe 25 to 30% of their capability and capacity. We don't get enough oxygen in. So when you go to the gym and you're all, oh, this is, it's not the exercise that's making you feel good. It's this in between. We get oxygen in. So if we're only feeding our body with 25, 30% oxygen, there's a lot there that's going unfed. There's a lot of blood cells to the brain and, and other parts of the body, central nervous system, not being fed. So I want you to do 20 exaggerated breaths in. When you get up, hold on to the bed stand, you will feel dizzy. <sighs> do 20 of those exaggerated. When you've done that, you'll feel dizzy, but now all your body's awake. Oxygen's got around to every single part of your body. Go into the bathroom, stand six feet away from the mirror, because if you get close up, you see all your blemishes. That's how you go out to see the world, knowing stand six foot away. You'll not see any blemishes. You'll see what other people see and say, I love you 10 times. I love you. I love you. Nothing else. No, no other affirmations. 
And when you've done that, finish off if you're a right-handed person, brush your teeth with your right for one week, left for one week, right for one week, left for one week. Your life will change. Okay, I've heard the two, the first two before, but never the last one. Please explain the last, the left and the right. Anything we can do that changes the norm. If you put your pants on with the right foot, do it with your left. Anything, if you're in a pattern of self-sabotage, we want to start changing that and interrupting that circuitry around the brain that always end up, ends up in a bad day or you relapsing. So a quick one is you have to, con you know, not concentrate when you do with this. You have to concentrate. New neural pathways are being built for this hand, you know? So you go back to that a week, it's easy. Then you go, oh, oh, it's really, and it just changes the circuitry. It's like if you're doing, if you want to write down some stuff about yourself while you're doing your trauma work, and let's say for instance, you're right-handed, write it with the left hand. So while the brain and the mind is concentrating on trying to write it properly with the left hand, the brain opens up the subconscious mind that comes out with stuff you've never even thought about in your life that's happened to you. So all these keys about just interrupting thought patterns, interrupting the circuitry, the basal ganglia with alcoholics is broke. If you imagine a clock phase, 10 after, you stop drinking, you get the wife back, you get the kids back, half past the hour, you get your job back, you get the car back, and then 10 to the hour, you self-sabotage. You cannot give me one reason why you self-sabotage, by the way. You give me a thousand excuses, but not one reason. That's because you need to do your work. So anything that interrupts, go to work a different way. If you have tuna sandwich every single day, have a cheese sandwich. Anything that interrupts where the brain goes, oh, otherwise you're setting that pattern of self-destruct. You have to step away from that, guys. No champions were born in the comfort zone. I love it. All right, so last, last question is, Doc, how do we find you? I mean, I know me and you, we've been on friends on Facebook for five or six years now. But what are some of the ways we can find you and support your mission? Well, uh, patient why we're booked up, guys. I don't I don't think we can, you know, we're not into taking patients, but you can call us 24 hours a day. My staff will talk to you, especially moms and dads. So I spell my name. If you're just listening with two Bs, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com is the website or just stick Dr. Rob Kelly in any search engine. You'll find us on all the platforms, guys. Come and say hi. And then obviously we'll get to know you, be friends, all that great stuff. We love everybody. And if you go on, on onto my Facebook and everything, every month or so we'll post, you know, we're always giving back. I think we, me and my wife give 150,000 back every year back into the community. Usually people addiction or some kind of addiction who are struggling especially one parent families where dad's trying to see his children at weekend will will pay for his apartment for 12 months we'll buy him a suit for court we'll pay for his legal fees uh, so the rob kelly foundation.org jump on there and uh, yeah just uh, just uh, come on and have fun guys you know if i've said something that offends you today it's just not lack of knowledge right on your fourth step or your 10 step whatever put it to your sponsor it'll be okay if you're offended, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to save lives. I don't care what you say or what you believe. God bless you. Uh, but uh, I don't care. You know, I've studied this for 30 something years and, and uh, all fact checked, all trialed, all tested, all researched over and over again. Uh, two things I want to finish with, guys, if I may, is if you're sat at home, guys, and you were in that place that I was, when I'm sat there with two gaping holes in my wrist thinking I'm never good enough, I don't fit in, I'll never amount to anything. First of all, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that thought pattern there from trauma. And, and, and secondly, 
0214-600-0210 is my personal cell phone number. Text me. I'll give you a 15-minute pep talk that will change your life. And you know, if I don't, I'm going to send you $100 for your time. Yeah, this is not about the money for me. This is about if I, I would rather spend 20 minutes on a call with you, building you up, giving you education, talking to you, and always being a friend from then on, than hearing your funeral next week. Because I know something. Now, I, I, I'm wealthy. I've worked a long time. You know, I, I give a lot away. But when I get to heaven, you know what? God's not going to ask me. Hey, Rob, how big was your car? Hey, Rob, how big was the house you slept in? What, what was it worth? Was it a million dollar house, Rob? Not going to ask me that. He's going to ask me one question, guys. How many fucking people did you help? That's what he's going to say, you know? And I want to be in that position where I help people because somebody helped me, finally helped me and saved my life. And the other thing I want to say is, Richard, you and Michelle, man, you, you do something amazing in this world. You know, I've followed you for so long. I look up to you. You know, your podcasts are amazing. The way you carry yourself is amazing. You know, uh, we, we don't say... We don't say thank you and compliment enough in this world. We just don't do it. So from me and Janet, who's my wife, to you and Michelle, you want to say thank you for everything you do, man, because with the knock-on effect, man, you're saving millions of lives, you know? And and this world can be lonely. Yeah, I remember I remember back in Dallas, you know, a guy walked in. He was going to commit suicide. He was devastated. You know, he walked in the office. He spent an hour with me. He'd come out. He was whistling. He was laughing with the staff. And two nurses in the kitchen, one said to the other, oh, my God, did you see what Dr. Kelly just did? Just mind-blowing. And the other nurse, with a bit of experience, as I know, right, have you told him? Oh, no, I would never. I mean, he knows. Nobody knows, guys. Nobody knows. Start telling people what they're worth. It. Start complimenting people, thanking them for the work they do, like, like Richard and Michelle. So thank you so much, Richard. This has been I – I was excited about this three days ago. And I've been on like you on 20 podcasts. I'm, I'm on Rogan or something in about, I don't know when it is, December. No, it's not December, February sometime. But this, this was my one, man, because I followed your journey. Thank you so I, much. I appreciate I appreciate um, you and Janet. I know you got a lot to do today. So when you see her, give her a big hug for me and Michelle. I love you, Doc. And I'm so grateful for you being in my life all these years. So guys, make sure you reach out to him on all social media platforms. Your life will be better if he's in it. Thank you, man. All right, Thank Doc, you. I love you. Have an amazing week. Love you too, man. Thank you. And guys, remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is but up. I love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.